Ванной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце наши well, hello and welcome to the SRP Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novakova and Margaret Budik. As you know, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who generously give monthly contributions to help us keep this podcast going. So if you would like to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So this week's interview is with Adib Khalid about Central Asia, and this is an interview that Margaret and Rusana recorded, produced, edited. So I was kind of, I was curious, what was the experience like for both of you? I was a little worried before the interview, especially while preparing the questions, because I wasn't sure which ones would be good for the interview which ones would be like interesting for the for the speaker for the conversation but then once we started talking i realized that just practicing interviewing every now and then actually made me much more comfortable talking about academic issues and you know russian history and culture and it made me realize that a lot of the kind of fear and maybe constraint is not really with is not really about my lack of knowledge or expertise it's really about it's psychological basically so it's kind of like this fear of talking to a superior right a professor and then asking them questions and being open about certain I don't know things that you don't know much about you know some some, all those things that you're not supposed to show like in a seminar room right um but all that practice that I had before actually made me much more um comfortable doing that and made me kind of approach it as like we're peers we're peers here and maybe even like the the role of a host ma- makes you a little more kind of in control of the situation. So you lead the conversation that gives you more responsibility, but also kind of more room to uh, drive the conversation where you want it to go. Mm-hmm. Central Asian history was a nice subject for us, too, because Rusana was living in Kazakhstan. I mean, Kyrgyzstan. I had used to live in Kazakhstan. So we kind of I felt more comfortable knowing that I did have a personal experience to build off of and that like like on the subject of Central Asian history, it was something that I had actually thought a lot about and was somewhat familiar with, unlike some of the other interviews that we've done where like it's a completely new topic for me and I have to kind of learn everything that I should know about it ahead of time. Uh, this was something where I felt like I could come to the table with what I already had and like uh, know somewhat what was going on. Um, now, did I feel in control or like appear to Adib Khalid? No, definitely. I, I mean, let's be honest. It was, of course, I have like a lot of respect for the guests that we have. And I'd be lying if I didn't Google their names prior to the interview and see that he like, you know, speaks at the Library of Congress and like, you know, places that 
has done conferences that I listen to, you know, with big starry eyes. So it's kind of, it's still intimidating, but this was a good subject to practice with. And I certainly look forward to uh, continuing to do so. And also on the editing side of things, because I was the one that kind of put everything together. That was a lot of fun. Um, it you <laughs> you feel so powerful. You're like, what are the people going to hear? Um, but I mean, of course, listeners don't fear. I leave all the important stuff in there. <laughs> but it's nice to also like have a sense of if I said something that I, I knew that when when we were going into the interview, that since I was going to be the one editing it, that I could not be as afraid to ask the questions that I did want to ask. Um, even though afterwards, of course, because we record the interviews prior, of course, later, I think there are so many more questions that I wish I could have followed up with. But uh, the interview all in all, I think, went really well. And I think all that does, whenever you want more at the end, that's a good sign. Well, let me, let me just say something about interviewing uh, and, and what you said, Rusana, about this, this hierarchy and nervousness. Um, what's really great, what I've learned from being the interviewer is that it gives you a lot of license to be ignorant because sometimes you, can, you have to play that role where you ask questions that you know the answers to. But you, for the audience, you have to play ignorant. And then sometimes you're just ignorant because you don't know. But because you're the one, you don't, not asking questions isn't doing the heavy lifting. You can play that. You don't really need to know a lot to interview somebody. So it is really good. It is really good practice to become familiar with people that, you know, like you said, Rusana, it's psychological. Um, and once you get over... The fact that, you know, in some quarters of the world, these are important people. Um, at the end of the day, they're just regular people that just know a lot about, you know, a particular subject. That's what I've learned, you know, over the years of doing this. Um, yeah, and most of them are really excited to be here and just talk exactly. about subjects that um, spark their interest. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I found I found that most people are very interested and grateful and 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 willing to to talk. So that that helps with with the pressure. So, well, I think you guys did a fabulous job, fabulous job and I look forward to you doing more of these. It certainly does me <laughs> a lot. It gives me a break um of doing it. So, all right. So, why don't we get into things and have do you want should I read the intro? Should I read No, you one of you should read his bio. So, who wants to read this bio? Rusana, okay. Adib Halid is the Jane and Raphael Bernstein Professor of Asian Studies and History and Director of Middle East Studies at Carleton College. He's published several books on the intersection of Central Asia with the Russian Soviet empires, including Making Uzbekistan, Nation, Revolution, and Empire in the Early USSR. His new book is Central Asia, A New History from the Imperial Conquest to the Present, published by Princeton University Press. Here's Adib Halid. So 
So to start us off, in your book, Central Asia, A New History from Imperial Conquest to the Present, you note that Central Asia has pretty much flown under the radar uh, in terms of general knowledge. So how would you introduce the history of Central Asia to those who don't know much about it? I would say that, you know, a lot of us don't think very much about it, don't know very much about it. But uh, a big point I make in the book is that Central Asia is actually uh, not someplace in the middle of nowhere, something out there. It has, it's been actually quite in the middle of everything, maybe the crossroads of history. It has experienced every current of modern history, both, you know, both the good and the bad, all the extremes of, of modernity, and that we need to think of it in that sense as, as a, a land that has been in the thick of things. I, I suppose that's not terribly profound, but that we need to get away from some of our most stereotypical images of Central Asia that we, you know, when we think of it, it's nomadic horsemen, it's uh, the Mongols, it's the Silk Road, it's the Great Game. I think that none of those crutches is terribly useful in understanding the history of Central Asia, but that it is something that in many ways is connected to all sorts, many different other regions of the world. So, so um, you just you just mentioned a few stereotypes about Central Asia, um, right? And we could say that there is a certain exoticization that's going on. <laughs> and uh, I wonder if you could elaborate on that and maybe tell us a few words about why Central Asia lends itself so easily to such exotic accounts. The barriers to entry in the study of Central Asia are uh, quite high. That for most people, especially in the West, but not just in the West, even, you know, Russian and Chinese uh, are themselves difficult and exotic languages. And you need both of them. But then you need various Turkic languages that uh, have, until very recently, even now, they're not terribly easy to acquire. So between the linguistic barriers to entry into the study of Central Asia in trying to make sense of what Central Asia is, whether it is simply an exotic periphery of two already exotic empires, or do we need to understand it on its own terms? So I think it's a combination of all of those things that makes it possible for someone like you know, the character Borat to come along and if define our understanding or lack of understanding of what Central Asia is. How do you then understand Central Asia? I was intrigued by your, um, you know, like a- as a Russian person, <laughs> when I think of Central Asia, I never include Xinjiang in, in, in that, in that, um, in that term, right? And so I was intrigued by your approach of combining both the five stans and Xinjiang. So we could say it's not merely a geographical term, right? So what what was the rationale? Like, why did you d- decide to approach Central Asia this way? That's a very important question. I thought a lot about that. 
So there is no single universal, universally agreed upon definition on Central Asia. And you can, in, in the, in Soviet usage, the term, uh, Asia or Middle Asia included just four republics. It didn't include Kazakhstan in it. It was, so that's the most, that's the narrowest definition of that. There is a really expansive definition that would include much of Eurasia in it. And UNESCO uh, has uh, published a six volume history of the civilization of Central Asia and where they took, it was a committee decision, but that includes everything from basically Manchuria to Tatarstan. And in and and northern Iran and bits northern Pakistan and India as well. So there are different ways of conceptualizing the space, and you need to figure out what you are interested in. And what I wanted to write about, it was impossible not to include Xinjiang in it, partly because there is a long history of interaction between what became Russian Central Asia and what became Chinese Central Asia. Excluding Xinjiang from that would naturalize the idea that Xinjiang has always been part of China, which is the official ideology in the People's Republic of China, but historically is completely untenable. So, I mean, the question was why stop there and why not include Mongolia and Afghanistan, Tibet for that matter, and I think it was there that I decided that I was not writing an encyclopedia, I was writing a uh, in historical narrative, and there has to be some sort of a narrative arc that you can limit. And bringing, so Mongolia shows up in a couple of places. Afghanistan is quite important in, in, in one chapter, but really, I think what I wanted to limit myself was to, to these two empires that really divide up this territory in the 18th century. And, and that they have certain political and social consequences of that, that, say, Afghanistan does not share. So building off of the way that you've defined Central Asia and knowing that it's seen many transformations over the last several centuries, what are some of the key defining characteristic constraints and strengths that we see consistent in Central Asia over time? So, again, I think one of the points I make is that, you know, this history happened. It was contingent in many ways. There was nothing foretold about it. And, and so, you know, I want to stay away as far as possible from any notion of defining Central Asia through some intrinsic or essential character characteristics but what has happened and you know as a historian looking back uh, is first the conquest by these two neighboring land empires and that historically was a transformation of the relationship between central asia and its neighbors that for a couple of millennia before this the step was ascendant the the nomadic empires based on the step could often dictate terms to their neighbors. And what we see happening around the 16th and the 17th centuries is a turning of the tide there, where these neighboring land uh, agrarian empires then enclose the steppe and conquer, that, uh, conquer Central Asia. So, so that's, and what I'm interested in is the 
is the consequences of that. And so here we have Central Asia being divided up into two land empires, that are those of the Qing and the Romanovs, that actually have uh, quite similar ways of treating their imperial territories and the people they conquer. There is uh, quite a bit room for difference, uh, for maintaining difference without any notion of equality or universality. And then the relationship between the Qing and the Russian Empire really gets transformed. That in the 18th century, the Qing were far more powerful and far richer than the Russian Empire. By the middle of the 19th century, the relationship has completely shifted. And so that the Russian Empire begins to make claims on the Qing itself through all these unequal treaties and so on and so forth. And all of that is then transforms Central Asia as well. And for a large part of the 19th century and into the 20th, Xinjiang is actually more closely tied to the Russian Empire than to the rest of the Qing. And then, of course, both empires collapse and are replaced eventually by communist regimes. And they are not, the two regimes are not identical, but they share many things. The Chinese, the People's Republic of China borrows many models, including how to manage national difference from the Soviet Union, but borrow while appropriating and putting it to their own use. And so one of the things that I include in Xinjiang allows me to do is to build in this sort of comparison between the Russian and the Russian Soviet and the Qing Chinese sides of Central Asia, without making the book uh, a compare and contrast, there is that comparison that runs through many different chapters. You you just mentioned that um, Xinjiang province was much more kind of was much closer to the Russian Empire. Or like was more under its influence than it was under China itself. Like, and what were? I'm just curious. Like, what were the consequences, or like how? What did what did it manifest in that these like changing fields of influence? So basically, um, uh, at the beginning, it was completely informal and. Uh, that the Russian influence was informal and paralegal. It, it was not recognized necessarily in any law, but from the 1880s on, Russian subjects had the right to free trade and extraterritorial protection in Xinjiang. So, which meant most of those were actually Tatars, not Russians. But nevertheless, as Russian subjects, they enjoyed the right to trade, which meant that the bazaars of Xinjiang often had many more Russian goods than Chinese goods, and that the the Muslims of Xinjiang, the people we would now call Uyghurs, were connected in terms of cultural influences with the Muslims of the Russian Empire. Tatars, but also Sinclasians, and then beyond to through the Russian Empire to the Ottomans. And so, again, all of these cultural uh, influences then defined how Uyghur, uh, defined cultural 
developments among the Uyghurs and even the rise of an Uyghur national identity really takes place in, in Soviet, in early Soviet Central Asia. And then during the 1930s, uh, Xinjiang was actually more fo- formally tied to the Soviet Union as a second satellite after Mongolia. And again, from the 1880s on, it was the way you went, you traveled from, say, Beijing to Xinjiang was actually on Russian railways. It was much faster and easier to actually take the Trans-Siberian Railway and then, and then travel overland to Xinjiang than actually travel overland within China. Uh, so, so there, uh, and what that meant was that especially in the 19, 1930s, Soviet models of national development were much more present and much more appealing to Uyghurs than anything that was going on in, in, in nationalist China. Uh, going back to the book, earlier you mentioned that the goal in your book was to write a historical narrative. So where did you begin the narrative and how did you make that call? So, yes. So I wanted to talk about Central Asia and the modern age, partly because in the field itself, there still remains this fascination among Central Asian ex- experts uh, with the golden age of Central Asia, whether it's the Timurids or the Mongols or, you know, or, or ancient Central Asia, and that somehow we might not always say so out loud, but many people working on early modern and medieval Central Asia have this sense that once Central Asia was conquered by the Russians and the Chinese, it, it, it's not real, that the real Central Asia has to be found, you know, when it was uh, not part of these other empires. And I wanted to really challenge that and to say that no modern Central Asia has seen really every single current of history that we talk about in other parts of the world. And so let's, let's trace that. So, um, I had initially, when I was thinking about this, I thought I'll just start with, you know, when Central Asia, in the middle of the 19th century, when Central Asia becomes part of the Russian, is conquered by the Russian empire. And, but then, you know, the Chinese conquest of Xinjiang had happened much earlier. So that's, so the book really begins with the Qing conquest of what became Xinjiang uh, in the 1750s. And it goes from there that allows me to actually then talk about early 19th century Central Asia before it was conquered by the Russians. So, so we can talk about this half a century when Central Asia had what is now Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Turkmenistan were not part of either empire. And to not, again, naturalize this connection between Russia and Central Asia on the one hand and China and Xinjiang on the other. So, so that, so that was the rationale. And then once they, these, Central Asia is part of these two empires, there is a different logic to its politics and and to cultural and economic developments than was the case before. 
Let's talk about the the impact of the Russian and the Chinese conquests. You you write in your book that um, Central Asia entered a new era of its history with these conquests, and and, and I'm. And I'm wondering what was so different from the Russian and Chinese rule if we compare it to, say, previous empires in, in Central Asia? Well, I think, you know, I like the concept of modernity, which not, if you use it carefully, not in a teleological sense, it makes us think about what was different with this period. I think all around the world, many places experienced modernity through colonial rule. I think that is explicitly the case with Russian inflation. The difference that... And here, I think the Qing conquest of Xinjiang was perhaps less elemental in that sense. But with, with the Russian conquest, especially of Southern Central Asia, you have new forms of administration, new forms of political power coming in, new conceptions of... The, the Russians have a, a, a very different way of thinking about society. But more than that, Central Asia gets uh, sucked into different economic forms of circulation. So it's trade with Afghanistan and India gets curtailed once the Russian customs border is in place and Central Asia's economic links turn towards Russia and then beyond into Western Europe as well. And then you have new forms of circulation of goods and people through railways, steamships, the telegraph, and all of that really comes with the Russians, and that, again, orients Central Asia in a different direction. Towards Russia, but also towards the Ottoman Empire and towards Europe in ways that was not the case before. And there is a turning away, and not complete, but the links with, with South Asia, with, with India and Afghanistan, weaken. And here, Xinjiang then from the 1880s on gets uh, hooked into these networks as well. So I think that's the difference. And what that allows is, you know, new discourses, new visions of the world among Central Asians themselves. This is not all dictated by the Russians, but it's these, this new conditions allow or sometimes force Central Asians to make sense of their world using um, a different set of concepts. Right. Like we have things like the great game forces us to imagine Central Asia as just a frontier for imperialism. And like you mentioned in your book, the Silk Road turned Asia into a pathway instead of a place of interest in its own right. So there's this constant fight for 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 power and global positioning. Um, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about this and what Central Asia represents to powers like Russia and China and now today Europe and the U.S. You know, I have always found the idea of the great game and uh, this geopolitical competition a little bit problematic, partly because especially the great game was it's really a term coined by monoglot British authors in the 19th century that sort of has 
again, more to do with sort of British self-identification as imperial adventure than anything else. The Russians didn't really think of that competition quite the same way. And when the term is used in Russian, it's a calc, it's a translation from the English. And so I, that I don't really have, you know, very much use for also because it exaggerates the importance of the British in Central Asia. The British interest in Central Asia was really about the defense of India. It was not really an actual competition for territory in Central Asia. If there is competition, it's between the Russians and the Chinese, which empires historically. That's the literature on the great game has no interest in, in that. But I think the, the, what you are asking is why is Central Asia so prone to this kind of geopolitical competition? And again, I, I'm not sure that, you know, this is particularly unique to Central Asia. If, if it's the concept of a great game that we have that forces us to think of Central Asia in that way. But I think today um, you have these states that are within the within the range of different powers that seek to project to project their influence but i'm not sure that geopolitical competition is the only uh way to think about that for for china today former soviet central asia is an important place for resource extraction uh, and for and it's quite central to its a very high, hugely ambitious plan for the what is currently called the Belt and Road Initiative, the, the new Silk Road. So the the Chinese state is quite happy with using the Silk the concept of the Silk Road, but also as uh, to secure its own hold on Xinjiang, which is, has this fraught relationship with the, with the People's Republic. But when the Soviet Union dissolved, you know, Turkey, people in Turkey assumed that, you know, these are Turkic brethren and they'll just be happy to turn to Turkey. And that's been a much more fraught relationship. The, I think Turkey has some sort of a presence, but there is really no natural geopolitical link there. Pakistan had the same idea that, oh, maybe we can you know, these people are Muslims and they will just turn to us. Well, there's the problem of Afghanistan in the middle first. And then second, that Central Asians understanding of the place of Islam and a uh, uh, relationship of Islam and politics is quite different from what people in Pakistan would assume. And so I think it's really, I mean, there's been a lot written about the new great game and all of that. And I think there's nothing particularly unique to Central Asia in that much. You can think about the Middle East in the same way of different people having uh, different powers, having ambitions and plans for it. So, yeah, so I would say that there's maybe I think it's. It's the construct of the great game that makes us think that there is something particularly unusual about Central Asia, but that, that, that is again about other powers. It's not about Central Asia. Just as uh, the Silk Road has become something about Europe and China rather than about Central Asia. 
Okay, so maybe to change gears, we can talk um, about this from the perspective of ordinary people. So I've recently been to Kyrgyzstan and um, I spent a week um, on Isikul. And so in Karakol, I got to know um, our host, an elderly gentleman um, who has lived in Karakol his entire life. And... Uh, you know, we could say that he has kind of like, maybe like if we were to place his allegiances among all these different powers, he would probably side with the Soviets and with contemporary Russia. And he was really excited to have me there because I'm a Russian and et cetera, et cetera. And so we talked a lot about history. And at one point he was telling me about how Kyrgyzstan became part of the Russian empire. And in his version, it was... Well, Kyrgyzstan was attacked by all these other nomadic tribes and then the people got together and they sent a letter to the Tsar and then the Tsar accepted us and then we entered this, you know, new era, like you were saying, uh, became part of this strong empire that protected us and we're forever grateful, etc., etc. Which was very interesting to hear from someone who you know, just went through a lot of difficulties over the past, um, you know, 30 years, etc. So I guess what I'm trying to ask is how can we interpret this kind of position? Uh, like why? And I know it's hard, it's probably hard to generalize and let's maybe not even talk about Central Asia as a whole, but like even about Kyrgyzstan, why do people... Uh, express these allegiances, have them, and, and, and like, how can we make sense of these kinds of statements if we're talking about, you know, brutal colonial rule there? I think what that your host was expressing is, you know, very much a vernacular, a popular uh, understanding that... The, the state or the academics who are in charge of talking about, you know, national histories might differ with. And all states in Central Asia do have these national, officially sanctioned national narratives of their history that all tend to be quite teleological in the sense that all history was gearing up to independence that was achieved in 1991, which is the great achievement. So what your host was talking about was something a little bit different. But here again, the idea that we asked to be part of the empire. I mean, that what that does is it gives you agency. And you have a lot of different national narratives like that. Actually, even you know, the origins of Rus that the, the Slavs asked the Varangians to come in and rule over them. It was empire by invitation. That is in some ways exactly the same thing. And there are um, historical narratives, one of which I quote, uh, among the Uyghurs that, you know, they asked the Qing to come in and maintain order. So in that sense, there is this idea of, you know, providing agency to yourself that we were not actually conquered. We actually asked them to come in. So, so that's one thing. And that's, that is very much the, 
you know, the popular understanding of death. But more broadly speaking, I think the memories of the Soviet Union, and this is much more about the Soviet Union than about the Russian Empire, are still very for a lot of, even though okay, more than half the population that lives in Central Asia today was not born before, while the Soviet Union existed, but certainly among the older generation, but also generally speaking, for post-Soviet Central Asia, the Soviet Union retains a very positive, the memory of that is very positive. And that has to do with, I mean, some people might dismiss it, it as nostalgia, but, all, but, but there is a sense that inflations have become integrated as full Soviet citizens. It was not always the case. And in my book, I argue that the Second World War, the Great Patriotic War, has a lot to do with transforming these allegiances. And that in the period, in the post-war period or the post-Stalin period, Central Asia had a place in the Soviet Union that most Central Asians fully accepted and were actually proud of and proud of being citizens of a superpower and being an example to other parts of the developing world. And that I, that was very much the case. And that expressions of national pride were completely above board and legal in the Soviet Union, especially in the post-Stalin period. And this was done by, you know, well-entrenched political and cultural elites. And this is the burden of chapter of, of the third section of my book. And so given all of that, I find it not at all surprising that that your host would express uh, sentiments like that and that none of that really is possible or available to Uyghurs in China, that the relationship of the Uyghurs with the Chinese state has been very different. How, outside of large imperial influences, how have power balances within Central Asia shifted over time? Like I know now there's the C5 um, but how did we get to the C5? And uh, how have the constant transformations or lack thereof affected that? Uh, the C5 is the, the Shanghai cooperation? C, uh, it's the central, it's the five Central Asia countries. It's their... Oh, uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure just how uh, r- robust is that. Because I think my sense is that, you know, Attempts at regional coordination have been rather the exception than the norm since independence, partly because, I mean, there is this huge, this under- notion largely unexamined of Central Asian unity that seems is supposed to have existed before its conquest. It, this idea comes in that, you know, the creation of these national boundaries in Soviet Central Asia was an attempt to divide and conquer and and that is all premised on this idea that there was a pre-existing unity and i have always found that really a difficult thing to grasp the rivalries between the various republics since 
the dissolution of the Soviet Union are proof that I think these states have different interests and they have found, you know, coordination and cooperation much more difficult than, than we would have expected. So, I mean, I think what the dissolution of the Soviet Union did was create a really a new geopolitical situation that had never existed before. That you, you did not have five nation states in Central Asia. You had you had all sorts of dynastic states before that did not conceive of themselves in this way. And the situation was new, you know, for Russia as well. That in no state in the current boundaries of the Russian Federation has had existed since the 1650s, perhaps, you know, a, and Russia without its, its empire or most of its empire. So I would say that that situation is brand new, but the C5, I would not place a whole lot of burden on that. That, um, I, I think the, on the one hand, there's the United Nations, which is, you know, a, a multilateral truly global organization. The other is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Really, it was a Chinese initiative that has perhaps the most regionally significant geopolitical. It's a venue where Central Asian states can act as states today. But And they have joined all sorts of other international organizations from the International Olympic Committee to the Organization of the Islamic Conference and so on and so forth. But but I think if there is a single significant organization that in which Central Asian states or most of them participate, I would say it's the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Having said that, as a historian, I am much happier talking with the past than, uh, than the present. So whatever I say about this, you know, what do I know? Okay, well, then uh, let's, uh, let's go back to the past and uh, maybe talk a little more about the Soviet experience. So you write that Central Asia was a laboratory of modernity and... Um, could you unpack this for our audience and perhaps give us some specific examples of how modernity was achieved, enacted? Aspired to more, perhaps, but, you know, the, so modernity is not really, a, you know, the way I think about it, it's not a final destination. It's, it's uh, a, a way of, um, you know, thinking about, but, I mean, modernity... You can say it first arrived in Central Asia in, in the late 19th century with the, the railway and the telegraph and the printed word. But it's really the Soviet period where you have this self-conscious moment where people say, maybe we can transform ourselves. And then you have these competing agendas of modernity, both of which are given a new lease of life by the Russian Revolution, by which I, I mean not the establishment of Soviet power, but the 
collapse of the empire and the opening up of new possibilities. And so the 20s is really, in some ways, you know, the de decade I find the most fascinating where you have Central Asians, Central Asian intellectuals who have uh, the Jadid, but not just the Jadids, also the, the, the Kazakh intelligentsia that had developed this critique of their own society, of how it's some sort of a hope of transformation. And in 1917, they all see that there are new possibilities of, of action, of transformation, of bringing in new forms of organization, new form, new kinds of knowledge. And then the Bolsheviks have their own notion of what change would look like. And so the 20, 1920s is really a period when there are these two competing models in operation. And then the Soviets win out. Ultimately, you know, they marginalize, even physically destroy all opposition. But they have a version also of what uh, change would look like how to transform an agrarian society. And that, that's always there at different levels of explicitness. And then finally, in the post-Stalin period, when the Soviet Union sort of re-enters global diplomacy and it's the era of decolonization, that's when most explicitly Central Asia is posited as a model of transformation of for other decolonizing countries of the developing world as a as a path to economic development. And the Soviets actually quite explicitly used Central Asia in the in the 1960s and 70s as a model of going from of overcoming colonialism and going uh, from you know agrarian a society to socialism, to industrial modernity, bypassing capitalism. Now, whether there was any truth, you know, just how robust that model was is a different question. And I think the term laboratory of modernity is, is borrowed in some ways or we share it with Artemy Kalinowski, who has a book, uh, Post-War Tajikistan, which was very explicitly seen as a as a place where you bring about modernity, but also as a model for for the third world. Oh, there, there's nothing terribly peaceful about any part of the Soviet Union, especially in the 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 twenties. I mean, there are different kinds of violence. The, the Russian Civil War. That, you know, that followed the revolution of 1917 was violent all across the Russian Empire. It had its own logic in Central Asia. So it's not simply the, you know, the red versus white divide that we talk about. And then, you know, many of the Soviet campaigns of the 1930s, collectivization was exceedingly violent, whether it was on purpose or whether it was its unintended consequences, but it really turned into, you know, genocide in Kazakhstan, where 40% of the Kazakh population perished. As a result of that, uh, there was resistance, there was violence by design, there were, and the, the purges of the 1930s were aimed explicitly at 
national intelligences of the non-Soviet, uh, sorry, the non-Russian people. So, you know, there, there's plenty of violence. And then in, in Xinjiang, you have, you know, the great leap forward and the cultural revolution that also, you know, shake up and destroy all sorts of things. So the violence is there and it is that that really shakes up society and transforms it. And that's why I, I think that, that these transformations of the Soviet period are really unlike... The transformations of the Soviet period are reshaped society, but also people's sense of themselves in very fundamental ways. Uh, and the violence is totally part of it. So tying that together with the story that Rusana told about people kind of having this false memory of asking, like, we asked to be colonized. That's There's no credence to that, really. Well, I, I wouldn't really just say yeah, yes or no or f- true or false. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. how people make sense of, the wor- of their world. And the historian's task is to talk about, you know, how the historian sees things happening. So I would not say that, you know, this is just a complete false memory or, you know, false consciousness as Marx and his followers would have said, but that's how people make sense of it. And for me, the remarkable thing is that the past is seen in, in largely a positive, a positive light. And that really, to me means that being Soviet had come to mean something quite positive. And we all, you know, I think in all countries, all nations, we remember the past and we also forget a lot. And that uh, that very famous quote from Ernest Renan that nations are come about when we remember. This is not an exact quote, but uh, that we have to remember together and now i have a kind of uh a question about the legacy of this past the legacy of the socialist past so we've been talking today that since the collapse of the soviet union over the past 30 years these um the, the countries um of central asia have taken quite different paths right as independent states and so um, as someone who works within post-socialist studies, I'm curious uh, whether the term post-socialist or post-Soviet still makes sense when we talk about Central Asia, given that the the present paths are diverging further and further away. Right. So that is I, the title of the second to last chapter of my book, Are We Still Post-Soviet? And I think I would give a... Inspired. My question was inspired. Right. (laughs) So I would give a qualified yes as an answer that while there are, the paths are divergent, the, the Soviet, and specifically the Soviet past, is still, has not evaporated. And there are many... So the legacies of that are, I think, the kind of society that emerged in 1991 was very much shaped by the late Soviet period. And here you have a list of the continuities, the 
political elites that were in that took power in 1991 or that found themselves in power in 1991 were very much products of the Soviet period. Many of them are still there. They operate in in non-Soviet conditions, but I think there is that set of continuity. There is uh, their basic understandings about society and about the relationship of society and religion that are still very much there. There are these infrastructural issues that still tie Central Asia to the rest of the Soviet space in terms of railways, where they go, where if you are at any Central Asian airport and you look at where the flights are coming in, there are still, there are many international flights, but flights from the former Soviet space will outnumber all of them. They, the Russian language is still useful and still the most widely acquired foreign language. And there are other links, institutional and professional links that still connect Central Asia to the rest of the former Soviet Union. The best example of that is, of course, there much has changed as well. The but when the in the late 1990s you see the beginning of a labor migration from Central Asia in search of better work. Where do they go? They all go to Kazakhstan and Russia, not, say, to the Gulf, which is where the labor migration from South Asia naturally goes. And so, again, I think there are these links and these connections would have been foolish to imagine would simply disappear. I mean, the, the, you have this bizarre irony that today, when Central Asians are foreign citizens, there are far many of more of them in, say, Moscow than there ever were when they were fellow citizens in, of the Soviet Union. And so today, Central Asians and Central Asian cuisine is everywhere in Russian cities in a way that wasn't actually not the case at all in, in the Soviet period. So not much has changed as well. And now the Soviet economy is gone. Central Asian states operate in a global neoliberal economy and they have, you know, new kinds of connections with the rest of the world. But to the extent that does the Soviet past matter? I think it still does. It helps us understand Central Asia and its specificity in the broader, you know, the rest of Asia and the broader Muslim world. I, I, I think the Soviet past does matter. That's why Uzbekistan is not Afghanistan. It, it's uh, Uzbekistan is different from Pakistan uh, for all sorts of reasons, but the its Soviet experience, I think, matters. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm glad they were they were in the same camp. <laughs> I, I, no, I mean, I, 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 so there have been people who've argued that you know we don't talk about post czarist Central Asia, we don't uh, talk about post French Algeria and all of that. So why do we keep talking about post Soviet? But again, I, I don't think Algeria can really be understood without its experience of French empire. And, and here, I think the Soviet past is, you know, 
Yes, it's a whole generation. There's only one generation that separates us from that. So, so what are your predictions for the future? What does the future hold for the people of Central Asia? All right. Well, as I said, as a historian, I, you know, I'm, but, but yeah, I mean, I would say I think the biggest transformation in Central Asia has been the rise of China in 1989, which uh, to me is in many ways a, a uh, more important year in 1991 even because that's when the Soviet Union ceased being a superpower and the Cold War was over. But if you think back, China was still a, you know, a mid-level global power and the Soviet Union had just stopped being a superpower. Since then, Russia is a major power. Though who knows what this war will do to Russia and its position and its economy. But the big transformation has been this massive rise of China, which is now, you know, I think the economy is, if I remember, like 40 times the size of what it was. And just uh, in, in, in 1989. So is this explosive growth of China that has transformed Central Asia, whether China wants it or not? And so that would be, I would say, you know, if we are having this conversation 30 years from now, that would be the big transformation. And whether that is accompanied by any cultural shifts, you know, uh, is, is a different matter, whether Central Asians would be speaking Chinese as their first foreign language or not. I, and that again, I think is where the Soviet connection is, is significant. I don't, you know, English has not replaced Russian in Central Asia in any significant way. Uh, English is everywhere, but it's, it is it has not replaced Russian, and I don't think that Chinese will be any more successful. Maybe even less than English. So yes, the economic power of China will be there, and it will have all sorts. Of, but whether it brings with it, you know, the sort of soft power and any cultural connections with um, Xinjiang is of course an entirely different matter in this which is like a very sad uh, story but for former Soviet Central Asia uh, will be tied ever more closely to China but what the cultural consequences would be I'm much more skeptical about that. That was Adib Halid. Adib Halid is the Jane and Raphael Bernstein Professor of Asian Studies and History and Director of Middle East Studies at Carleton College. He's published several books on the intersection of Central Asia with the Russian Soviet empires, including Making Uzbekistan, Nation, Revolution, and Empire in the Early USSR. His new book is Central Asia, a new history from the imperial conquest to the present, published by Princeton University Press. All right. Thank you very much, Rusana. So let's um, let's jump into some thoughts that you guys had about this interview in Central Asia. Who wants to start? Who should I start? I don't know. I wish that I had thought to ask this during the actual interview, but uh, I noticed that well throughout the interview, Khalid repeatedly kind of pushed that the Great Game and the Silk Road these ideas are not really helpful. Um, tools through which to look at Central Asia. 
and I was I was wondering if that I don't know my experience kind of gave me a different perspective was because I was studying at Al-Farabi Kazakh National University in Almaty so I was just with a bunch of political science professors basically and they were all Kazakh and like one of the most interesting parts about my time there was the noticeable lack of military impulse when while I was there it was after Donald Trump had been president so everyone was kind of talking about that and trying to ask my opinion about it naturally as an American um and contrary to in America like when in West Virginia a lot of the politics related conversations inevitably lead to some kind of suggestion of war or escalation to that point but this isn't really a part of the conversations that I was having in Kazakhstan and I think this speaks to a larger part about we un- about how we can understand the space is like through its limitations which I think at some point I tried to ask but it just went in a different direction um so do you feel let me let me ask yeah. do you feel that that this the silk road and uh great game you you don't you ha- you don't have as much a problem with it or I'm trying to understand well, like what did you want to ask him specifically so at the i guess what's the exact question is Hmm, what is the exact question? I mean, I just have this distinct memory of like while I was there, there were all of these professors that were like writing books about the new great game and the new silk road and they were using these exact um things that we that are high, obviously like founded in western imperialism, but they're kind of adopting them for themselves, which was a conversation that another conversation that we had, but it was like is it not useful to understand is it not useful to use these as tools to understand if the people themselves are using them as tools to understand their own history if it's a part of their identity and a part of their their sense of value well can i can i can i play play Khalid here and give a potential answer now I, of course i don't know if this is what he would say but this is my from listening to the interview this is my impression it is first off um well in terms of the scholars, sometimes you have to appeal to the market, right? <laughs> so, you know, given that there's so much buzz about the new great game, it's not surprising that scholars are kind of following that trend and, and looking at it. But I do, I do think it's problematic because, and I, I, this is something I think Khalid was, was saying, is that it basically only, it pushes Central Asia as a, as a, into the periphery. It's almost like turning Central Asia into just an object. It has no subjectivity of itself. It's only through the the the, the lens of imperial conquest. Um, and and that 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 brings up all sorts of problems in terms of representation, in terms of agency, in terms of you know perpetually othering Central Asia as an object to be possessed or manipulated rather than a subject of its own fate and own agency that's that's kind of how i see um you know if we want to go move into a i don't know a post-colonial critique uh it seems to me decentering the the imperial decentering central asia as an object of imperial conquest is one way to do that 
I see that. But then I also look at contemporary politics, specifically in Kazakhstan. I guess I can't speak to all of Central Asia, but they have this their political strategy is called like multi-vectoral balancing or whatever that is very kind of outwardly just saying that like we're balancing all of the imperial powers around us and it like those previous situations kind of are they not still at play today in politics and in history like is this not a part of contemporary history as well no i i think it, it certainly is you can't discount those things as if they're not important and don't exist but it you know societies are many layers and and i think only i think the point is is that only seeing it through the vector of great game or silk road is the problem when I was in Kyrgyzstan, I also had the impression, like you, Margaret, that there were all these other powers that were trying to get into this new field. Well, not so new, but fairly new field. Um, and we talked a little bit about it during the interview about the Turkish university in Bishkek. And then when I traveled to Isikul, I remember there was this huge red banner on multiple uh, points on the road that kind of said that this road was renovated through the Silk Road Initiative. And that also made me think about all these, um, you know, it made me think about the, the term that you mentioned, the new great game. And I think we talked about it prior to the interview. But what I appreciated, and maybe that would be helpful what I appreciated in um, Halid's answer when we brought it up, he was talking about the fact that people themselves in Central Asia, and I don't remember, maybe it was about Kyrgyzstan, maybe about another country, they, they kind of, the way that they relate to all these other countries, it seems like China or Turkey is... is definitely present and they're trying but for people there in the country there this involvement doesn't seem to be as significant as their shared history with uh, with Russia and with the so Soviet Union and i think perhaps he's coming from the position maybe uh, i mean he's a historian but it seems like as an ethnographer would come right from the position of how people interpret what's going on and perhaps from his research it seems that that shared past is so much more important than like all these little involvements that they see happening around them i mean yes the road is a great thing like you got like a better infrastructure but does it really like build connections between real people in the way that the Soviet Union did, you know, like a shared future, some kind of common goal, like they were doing this together and all those things that like lasted for, I don't know, 70 years. Um, this, this brings up something, one of the things that I thought of. At one point in the interview, Rusana, you asked, you had this anecdote about your, this conversation you had with this Kyrgyz host of, that you met. Uh, and the relationship the relationship with the Soviet Union and what that says about the Soviet Empire is really interesting to me because, you know, in most colonial relationships, once the colonizer leaves, 
there is a rejection of that colonial past, right, as oppressive, et cetera, et cetera, it's denying our own self-determination, national identity, autonomy, whatever you want to say. But it's really fascinating to me that in, in the Soviet colonial case, it's not like a colonial empire that we're used to, right? We can't really fit. It seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, but there's something about the colonial practice in the Soviet Union and its relationship to uh, its republics, particularly in Central Asia, that lends to a, a different narrative that I, is, is fascinating to me that it continues. Um, um, the, other, the other thing, at least another kind of takeaway that I had is the whole problem or challenge, I should say, the, the challenge of defining what Central Asia is. Be, so for example, the inclusion of Xinjiang, I would have never, I never considered, right? I, I think, I, when I think of um, Central Asia, I think of you know, the post-Soviet states Mongolia, and maybe Afghanistan, but not really. Um, and so to, to include Xinjiang is, is a really interesting additive to that. And, and the fact that I had no, I, of course, I don't know anything about Xinjiang, but I did not know that of the Russian influence um, that I, I, you know, that's a part of history that I just am not familiar with. And I thought that was really fascinating. But, but going to the, the issue of you know, Central Asia seems to be, for the most part, treated in terms of regional history and not so much national histories, right, um, which I think is really interesting. There tends to be, we talk, we talk about it as a region and less and less about, not so much about particular nation states. Um, and I think that's an interesting challenge of trying to represent and write the history of this region. Especially since a lot of these, like, trying to concoct a national history is so complex because in Kazakhstan there are three clans, and each of those three clans have their own different cultures and backgrounds, and like, and this is the, with clan society, I mean, it was all Turkestan, you know, it was, Central Asia is the word that we use now, I guess, but in the, in the not-so-distant past, these were just called Turkic peoples and and were kind of tribes that are not connected from each other. And the idea of where the borders were split, I believe that there is still a lot of contention today about how the borders were decided and the nation states were like parsed out. Um, I don't know if it's so clear. Well, it, it actually now it reminds me of if I wonder if there's a comparison to be made between the drawing, the artificial drawing of borders in the Levant, in the Middle East, by colonial powers after World War One, and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and the way borders are drawn by the Soviets uh, in Central Asia. I wonder if it creates a similar problem because it cuts through traditional, you know, claims, maybe ethnic groups, linguistic differences, maybe religious differences. Um, as uh, maybe there's an interesting colonial comparison in this respect in terms of the maps and the way the social political ordering of people by colonial powers, in this case would be Moscow. 
Yeah, I definitely found his response fascinating. And I mean, I know that this is just an, an, an anecdote from a trip and like that guy does not represent how maybe younger generation feels about the past or whatever. But at the same time, we cannot discard the fact that those people are also there which led to quite a few conflicts after the Soviet Union collapsed because all those borders were, maybe a lot of times, the way that the borders were drawn did not coincide with how different ethnic groups lived, right? If you look at the border between Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, it's it's insane. Or like the southern border with Tajikistan. Um, and I wonder, I mean, going back to your question um, Sean, about why Central Asia is usually talked about as regional history, not national history, is part of is it's like it's connected to that that those states were constructed almost artificially in the very recent history, and so uh, the other thing is um, the relationship. He he had this interesting discussion about modernity, uh, which which I found quite. In terms of, again, going back to this, let me try to situate my thoughts here. Um, in talking about modernity and, and Central Asia's transformation into a, a modern society and the way that was done through colonialism, right? It's, it's the Russian imperial state and then the Soviet state that is bringing lines of communication. It's integrating the Central Asian uh, economies into the central economy of the Russian Empire, but even more so in the Soviet Union, if you think of cotton production in Uzbekistan, um, and and how that modernity is accepted, negotiated, and also um, uh, used by people in the region to transform their own lives. Is is also a fascinating thing, and again, I can think of other other colonial con you know contexts here, say like British and India, um, and the and the role of bringing I mean technology, governance, and other institutions that we associate with modernity, and how they are implanted but shaped by locals, is also an interesting. Um, an interest of mine, at least, and how that, that plays out. Yeah, I also find this fascinating, this topic, because um, when, we, when we talk to people who went through this experience, right, it's, 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 it's so, their, their reaction is so controversial. On the one hand, they recognize the violence that has been done to their community. On the other hand, they appreciated the benefits um that this violence brought with it and um i remember in our group which a friend of mine um host this reading group called uh russian peripheries so in our reading group we talked about david scott and his book conscripts of modernity and I think this term describes the position that these people are in so well. It's like you've been conscripted to modernity against your will, but at the same time, now that you're in it, you become part of it, and then you kind of like get to enjoy 
the benefits and the burdens of it. And at the same time, because it's part of your present life and everything, it's like your shared, uh, your shared present with other people. So your attitude towards it changes inevitably, right? All right. Well, thank you very much for your comments. Um, on on a good again, good job on the interview. Uh, it was nice to is nice to take a back seat for once. Um, I'm your host Sean Guillory, and I'm joined as always by Rusanam Novikova and Margaret Budik. And as you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and of course, listeners like you. You know, if you like this podcast, please help us out by sharing on social media and tell your loved ones to listen. If they have any interest in Russia and the wider Eurasian region, I think this is the place to go. Also, feel free to drop us a line on social media, Facebook, the srbpodcast.org website to let us know what you think. And as always, this is a nonprofit educational endeavor. The SRB podcast relies on the support of individuals and institutions to keep it completely free and free of advertisements. Uh, so please help us keep it that way by becoming a monthly patron by joining the table of ranks at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or srbpodcast.org. And until next time, bye. Thank you.